time is that period in between. And, and then the camera rotates around 360 degrees, and now Will Smith is a completely broken man, you know. He's still in the same company, but something very traumatic has happened to him. And he, he seems unconcerned and playing with dominoes, and his staff are kind of skittering around in the background nervously. Anyway, the, the rest of the film, you know, kind of develops in a kind of Hollywoodish way. But I, I kind of became obsessed with, I mean, is that really true? Uh, time, death, and love, is that what sells us our Cheerios <laughs> kind of thing? And, uh, you know, but it became kind of like a, a huadu for me. Uh, love, death, and time. And I started to see, yeah, you know, that's actually a lot of what's happening. Uh, basically, you could even simplify it further. You know, you have creation or a beginning, you have death, destruction, and you have sort of the period in between, you know, a continuity, maintenance, whatever. And that really applies to everything. Uh, if you look at uh, Hinduism, uh, the, um, the word Trimurti is uh, the Hindu trilogy, which is uh, Brahma, Vishnu, and uh, Shiva. Uh, Brahma is the creator, Vishnu is the preserver or the maintainer, continuity, and of course we all know Shiva is the destroyer in, in that. And that's true of, of everything in life. Everything in life has a beginning, a period of time before it eventually ends. And, um, you know, that in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, you know, they kind of look at the, well, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, they look at all of our lives and the death process in terms of um, bardos, basically just periods of time. And, and um, Buddhism itself, uh, mainstream Buddhism, has its own concept of bardo. Uh, and then forms of Buddhism, like Theravadan Buddhism, I, I don't believe, believe in a bardo at all. You know, uh, you die and you're immediately going in pretty much to a, a new life. But regardless, uh, in the Tibetan view, uh, you know, there are six bardos, uh, three of which have to do with death or the death process, and three of which have to do with our daily lives. And we just hopefully left one of those bardos, which is the bardo of meditation because it's, a, it's a, a, a different state. Then we have the, the bardo of our daily life, and finally the bardo, the dream bardo. And a bardo is simply a period of time. In fact, you could probably subdivide it. Anything that begins and uh, continues, even for just a few seconds, it ends, it's, it's, you could almost consider it to be a bardo. The, the ones concerning death, um, is death process, the bardo of sort of the, the actual process of dying. The, the, and then interestingly enough, there's sort of the bardo of the clear light. At the moment of actual death, there's this brilliant uh, experience of reality, which people have called a clear light. And uh, if, if one has not practiced in one's life, 
you're actually, you withdraw from it. You, you can't handle it. But if you have practiced in your life, it's an opportunity for enlightenment at that point. And it's sort of a very blissful state. And then finally there's the bardo of the in-between state between death and the next life, uh, which is kind of the classical sense of bardo, and of which the Tibetan Book of the Dead was writing how to navigate that, that period of time. When we have a kind of uh, remembrance services here for somebody who's maybe died or, you're, you know, we have a 49-day service. 49 days uh, in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, is kind of the maximum length of time one can be in this final bardo, the bardo between death and the next life. Seven weeks, seven times seven. Um, so who's to say, you know, if you look at, um, that, that's a Tibetan text that is not part of the mainstream Buddhist canon. Uh, if you look at the reality of what happens at death, uh, I think you could say no one really knows. Um, you know, you, people, you know, there are books available on um, uh, near-death experiences or experiences of, of heaven or hell after people have died but come back. But it's not really, you know, they're near death. It's not a, a death experience. Uh, if you look at people who uh, have talked to literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of spiritual teachers and psychologists and neurologists, and psychiatrists. Um, I'm thinking of Tammy Simon at uh, Sounds True. She's done 500 podcasts with people who are sort of at the top of their field. And uh, basically, uh, she says no one really knows basically what happens. She talked to Ken Wilbur, you know, the American philosopher who's, uh, they're based in uh, Colorado. And he, at the time, was reading four books a day. You know? So he uh, was fairly well read, or so he said, basically. Uh, and he said, no one knows, you know. So it's one of those things that you, you can talk about and uh, kind of, I hope I'm not getting too far uh, off what I wanted to talk about. But if you, if you look at Buddhism, and you can look at science, um, the reason science works, kind of part of that philosophy of science is, and the reason we have 747s flying and you know the, the sort of healthcare systems and, and all these different things we have now, is it's falsifiable. You can falsify anything in science. And, you know, it, it allows for truth to happen because, and I find this all the time um, with my, my own situation, that you're, you're basically learning things and then you're finding out that that's not true or maybe it's not wholly true and then it changes. And that allows growth. And with, with anything I'm saying now, and pretty much anything in Buddhism, uh, like the, I'm thinking of the Kalama Sutta, uh, you know, you try it out yourself and see if it's 
if it's wholesome or true or works. And you just don't buy the, the doctrine, basically. Uh, you know, the eternal truths um, are something you have to kind of discover yourself. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you can, you can read and study and listen to uh, all kinds of talks, but it's basically up to you. I think that's why poetry works so well, because you're not being given this kind of, uh, you know, intellectual kind of uh, format that you're being asked to believe in. Uh, it, there's a lot of freedom, space in, in that. And uh, now I've completely gone off everything that I'd originally uh, wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, in, in death, though, I mean, if you look at death in, in the history of, uh, say, Zen, for example, uh, and uh, you'll discover Zen masters usually know when they're going to die, it seems, and how they're going to die, and they don't seem to have any fear whatsoever of that. And in fact, a lot of death experiences seem to have a, almost a humor to them, you know, and then quite often a Zen master would be asked to recite or give to his students some kind of poem or final statement uh, when he dies. And that's a whole different talk. But just as an example of, uh, you know, this kind of rich tradition, and I'm thinking as well of what our um, founding teacher Samasunam said. He told me, uh, or told us one day at a service, if you want to see how great a teacher was, see how they die. And, you know, I didn't quite understand what he meant. Um, but, for example, here's one uh, thing that happened in the 8th century. Uh, there was a very well-known, and he wasn't a monk, he was a layman, a layman pang. And, but he was very highly respected uh, for his wisdom, and his, his family seemed to have an incredible uh, level of awakening. People compared him to Vimala Kirti, the uh, uh, Indian layperson, lay who was very awake as well. And uh, he decided that that day he was going to die. So he sat on his meditation cushion and he was preparing to pass away. I don't know how they do that, but somehow <laughs> they can manage it. And uh, his daughter came in and said, uh, Master Pang, uh, come out and see this event outside. So he, he got up and he went outside. I think it was supposed to be an eclipse or something. And while he was outside, she went, sat on her, the meditation cushion and passed away. You know, so he came back and he laughed, <laughs> I guess. And you know, it's not really that funny, but on the other hand, it is kind of humorous, you know. I mean, how, you know, she, and he said something to the effect that, well, she was always very, very clever. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, you kind of wonder where you get that Zen humor from, 
with things uh, that, you know, everybody's, you know, I mean, let's face it, everybody's afraid of, of death and dying. And that's, you know, everybody's greatest fear. Um, I have to deal with that fear all the time. Uh, like my wife has been very, very sick and she was actually offered a, a palliative bed a year ago. But, you know, you're kind of keeping uh, everything going and, uh, you know, but you're dealing with that all day and all night. You can't leave her alone. Uh, my daughters come over, they take care of her. But you can kind of see how fragile it is and how your moods in your life and how you handle yourself actually directly impact life and death, basically, every single day. Uh, and it's scary. I mean, a lack of mindfulness. She, she has a kind of severe COPD, and she's had a couple of falls lately as well, which hasn't helped. Um, you know, you're on oxygen, uh, machine at night, and if you make a mistake, it could be fatal. Uh, you know, we have a BiPAP machine at night, she takes off the mask, you have to go in, put her back on an oxygen line. If you hook up the wrong line, um, you know, she might not be there in the morning. Uh, and uh, I was watching, uh, I think, Dr. Oz recently. I don't incessantly watch TV, but, <laughs> uh, but he had, uh, who was it, a dog, the bounty hunter. Who, I, I don't know if people are aware. It's really long hair, and he's a bounty hunter, which we don't have in Canada, I don't think, in Hawaii. And uh, so it's maybe easier to catch people who are evading debts in Hawaii because where are they going to go, basically? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about... Uh, and anyway, he was on Dr. Oz. He's obviously been somewhat traumatized himself. He's in poor health. He still looks the same, but... He's suffering from a lot of different conditions and, I think, addictions. And he was talking about, you know, Dr. Oz was saying, well, you know, we can treat the addiction, but we really have to treat why, what's put you into this space. So he was talking about his mother, and uh, his mother had emphysema. Well, emphysema now is called COPD, you know, like chronic bronchitis, emphysema. They're subsumed under this chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, and she, you know, he had to deal with this for quite a number of years as a young person. And then somebody told them they should all move to Hawaii because the air is so clean there that she won't need the oxygen. And uh, so they moved out there. And finally, one night, she decided to take off the oxygen line and she was dead in the morning, you know, so it, uh, it was fairly traumatic for him. So, you know, it's a kind of a, a funny world where you have to deal with life and death. And I think, as we probably all have experienced now, I mean, just basically uh, uh, sitting through a meditation, a 30-minute meditation, you know, the meditation has a beginning, kind of a middle and an end. Quite often, we are waiting for that end to occur. But it's not permanent. Uh, it's very odd if you, say, sit for 33 minutes and you're used to sitting for 30 minutes, because then it does seem like you've done it for an extra 
20 minutes or so. It's funny our, our feeling of time. People these days, according to Pema Chodron and her vast experience uh, teaching meditation to groups in, in um, Halifax and other places, are less and less able to sit for any length of time. Um, you know, people used to be able to sit 40 minutes, 30 minutes. Now her sittings are 20 minutes long. I guess it's part of that culture where if your computer takes an extra second to boot, you get upset, you know, kind of thing. Or if the person in front of you at the red light hesitates for half a second, you know, it's uh, problematic. We're just used to, you know, kind of... So time, I guess, just finishing off here, because I've done my sort of thing with time, uh, you know, and you know, the sense that, yes, we, 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 things begin, things continue for a while, things end, they begin again. It's just something we, we can't avoid, and it, particularly in Buddhism and in Zen, one embraces. Uh, this very building has gone through periods of birth, continuity, death, and rebirth. You know, we moved in here in 1988, it was renovated, we sold it to a Tibetan organization in 2000, and then in 2010 we moved back, and, uh, you know, so there's definitely been, you know, beginnings and ends, and uh, you see as well the Sangha changing all the time, and uh, embracing that and not being afraid, I think, is, is kind of at the core of uh, our practice. Thank you.